challenging passage of scripture. And the past couple of weeks have been perhaps somewhat academic. And, and thank you for sticking with me during this very challenging and perhaps um, rather heady explanation of chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. It is a, a wonderful passage of Scripture. And I believe that God gives us such challenging passages of Scripture to force us to really study. We have to really dig into what God is saying. And I think the other reason is, is because it's really easy to think that, you know, especially preachers and, and teachers, sometimes we think we've got God's Word mastered. And then we run into chapter 20, and it's like we realize we do not master the Word of God, and it is to master us. And we need to realize that we submit under the awesome Word of God. So let me give you a little bit of review of where we've been. And we've been discussing challenging topics like the millennium. The millennium is just a fancy word for saying thousand years. And when we talk about the thousand years in the book of Revelation, we're talking about the millennium in, as it relates to the return of Christ. And the millennium is a tough subject. And the reason it's a tough subject, at least in its, how it relates to the return of Christ, is because it's mentioned nowhere else in the Bible except here in chapter 20. In fact, the word thousand years is only mentioned three times in the Bible outside of chapter 20. And none of them have to do with, none of them relate to the return of Christ. So when we deal with the millennium, the thousand years, um, we don't have a whole lot of scripture to interpret scripture. And, and, and it's easy to carry our presuppositions and our biases into it. And so we've been studying the millennium. And, and we also were studying the binding of Satan. This is another really difficult passage because... Really, nowhere else in the Bible talks about the binding of Satan except in Revelation chapter 20. Oh, and Mark chapter 3 and Matthew 12 where Jesus says, I have bound Satan. I have bound the strong man. So we have a few little references, but this whole idea of the binding of Satan and what it is is mentioned nowhere else. It makes it a challenge, but we've worked our way through that. And then we had to deal with things like the first resurrection. Well, the first resurrection is mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. It presumes the second re resurrection, but there is no reference, there is no mention of a second resurrection. So we're dealing with what is a first resurrection when there's no second resurrection mentioned, but just simply presumed, and it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And then we read things like the second death. Second death was a little bit easier, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. So we've been discussing these really fun and challenging. I don't know about you. I like getting into these things, and I like working through them. And they are a challenge, but I truly enjoy working our way through them. So here was our conclusion. And I realize that many of you will not agree with my conclusions. But I think they're, they're based on... Context using good biblical interpretive tools. We've used we've considered the context, not just the immediate context, but the context of the book of Revelation. We have used scripture to interpret scripture. That's an important interpretive tool. And then the other thing we've done is we have used clear passages of scripture to help us understand these unclear passages of scripture. You need to keep that in mind as you read the Bible. When you come across something that is unclear then you can go to what is clear 
and understand what is clear, and then you can interpret the unclear in light of what is clear. And we've used all of those principles, and what we've come up with is this, that I do not believe, as you understand, I, I believe that the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. That does not mean that I can just assign uh, any, interpret- any interpretation I want to it. There are limits to what we say, but I believe it's symbolic. It's talking about... Many of the images, if not most of the images in the book of Revelation are symbolic. Pretty much all of the numbers are symbolic. And so therefore I come to the idea that the thousand years is figurative. It, is, it begins with Christ and it ends with Christ. The thousand year period that is referred to in chapter 20 begins with Christ. And that thousand year period will end when Jesus Christ returns. I believe then that during this thousand years, Satan is bound, but he's bound in a very limited way. And he's bound in such a way, the binding of Satan is is not something that he ceases all activity, because there's nowhere in the Bible that says that. We have to bring that conclusion into the Bible. What does it say Satan cannot do? It says that he cannot deceive the nations any longer and then when he's free and we'll look at this then what does he do? He deceives the nations to come against the church and destroy the church so the binding of Satan to me seems pretty clear that he cannot amass forces to come against the church and destroy the church we see that I draw that right out of scripture I bring no presupposition into that And I think that's where we end up. And so we see that Satan cannot amass forces to destroy this church or quench the spread of the gospel. The other thing we've learned is that those who die during the millennium, this time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, will live. The moment you die, you will live again and you will will live and reign in the presence of Christ. That's good news. If you're to die today, and who knows? The moment that you pass from this life, you will pass immediately into the presence of Jesus Christ. And you will live and reign with Christ. And our brothers and sisters who are dying for the gospel, they are in the presence of God. The world says that they lost. The revelation tells us the way things really are. And the way things really are is they are victors. We've been praying on Wednesday nights. It's been a while since we prayed for... um, uh, persecuted believers, and we had six or seven that we bl- prayed for. And one of the women we prayed for, um, her name is Bibi. Um, she is scheduled for execution um, for um, for the gospel, and she will not turn away from the gospel. We need to continue to pray for her. Um, I think they're going to hang her. Um, but I will tell you this: it will look like the beast is won. I want to assure you of this. He does not win. Our sister in the Lord wins because if they carry this, she wins no matter what. They set her free. And she proclaims the gospel. They keep her in prison and she proclaims the gospel in her prison. And they put her to death and she lives and reigns with Christ until he comes again. That's where we've been. Here's where I hope to go today. So just a preview of where I want to go today. Uh, We now want to discuss what happens at the end of the millennium. So what happens? There's going to be this time where the millennium ends and Christ comes back. What happens? What what are those events like? Well, we're going to see that. 
And depending on your perspective, this, today's message is going to be really, really good news, or it's going to be really, really scary news. One or the other. And so as we come, as our text brings us to the end of this present age, remember the Bible only talks about two ages. This present age and the age to come. There are no other ages. This present age ends and the age to come begins. And at the end of this age, we'll see the the culmination of what happens at the end of the age, but we will also know that what happens at the end of the age is God preparing things for the age to come. We'll see that. So let's go ahead and let's read our text today. It's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. It says, And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if, anyone, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Probably one of the most significant images of the book of Revelation is, well, of the whole Bible is, is the day of judgment. Judgment Day. I mean, we all have images of it, right? And movies have been made about it. And Judgment Day. Today we're going to see Judgment Day. Like I said, it's going to be a day that is either going to be pretty good news for you or uh, not. And so we begin this particular passage of Texas. When the thousand years are completed, Satan is released from his prison. Now, I... I, I want to make sure that we understand something very important about this idea of Satan being released. If you've been with us for a while, we've talked about this phrase, the divine passive. In other words, what this means is that God is in control. I want you to understand, Satan does not escape. It's not like he pulled a Houdini and picked the lock. It's not like he overthrew the guards and got away and some demonic cohorts came and sprang him out or sent him a cake with a file in it and he somehow got out of his prison. Satan was released. He is not autonomous. God is sovereign. And God, in His wisdom and judgment and mercies, has decided that there will come a time where Satan will be unbound. This is all within the plans and the purview of God Almighty. You and I don't decide this, and Satan doesn't somehow get out. 
Whatever this binding is, his unbinding is totally in God's hand. Now we should know, well then, now once he's unbound, what does he do? When Satan has freedom to do what he wants to do, what does he do? Yeah, he does steal, kill, and destroy. But let's look, because it's very specific. And this helps us understand what the binding of Satan is. Because one of the things that we learn is that when Satan's unbound, what does he end up doing? He does what he was previously not allowed to do. He does what he was previously prohibited from doing. And that is, he goes and he deceives the nations to attack the saints. That's what he does. He goes out to the four corners of the earth and he deceives the kings to come against the saints and the beloved city. And I'll put forth that that's the church, but I'll I'll save that for a little bit. So when Satan is unbound, this is what he does. He does what he couldn't do before. What couldn't he do before? What he couldn't do before was he couldn't deceive the nations to come and to destroy the church. And now he's free. And now he is amassing people from all over, from the four corners of the earth to come against the people of God. I believe it says he gathers them together from the four corners of the earth. And the number of them is like sand of the seashore. I believe that he gathers them together through demonic deception. And notice this, that he gathers them together for the war. You should note that article there, the. Because I have maintained throughout the book of Revelation that the book of Revelation is not strictly chronological. You're probably getting tired of that, and that I believe that most of the stuff is symbolic. But I'll just keep going. Maybe you haven't been sitting in with us for very long, but I believe that the book of Revelation is not strictly symbolic, or is not strictly chronological. But what it does is it keeps telling the same story over and over again. That's why between the 6th and 7th and the 6th seal, we see the return of Christ. And then in chapter 11, we see the return of Christ. The kingdoms of the Lord, or the kingdoms of the earth, become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Sounds to me like Jesus returned. The end of the seventh trumpet, or the seventh vial, Jesus returns. We keep seeing those, that story over and over again. And by the way, we keep seeing this war. This is not the first time we've seen this war. You will note that John calls it the war. And notice that Satan goes out and deceives the nations to gather together for the war. Boy, sounds like I've read that before. I wonder where. I wonder where. Ah, chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. I'm sorry here. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. They are, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war. 
of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk around naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which is in Hebrew called Harmageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. And so, what do we see here? That demonic deception goes out to the kings of the whole earth and gathers people together for the war. And then, when the last bowl gets poured out, God says it is done. It's done. But then in chapter 19, verses 19 through 21, we see the same thing again. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized with him and the false, the false prophet who performed signs in his presence, which, are, which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and the, those who worshipped his image, those who were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the, on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Once again, this, this imagery comes out of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38 and 39. And again, we see armies gathered together to fight against Christ. And when it's done, they're all dead. And then in chapter 20, we see a whole bunch more people. So where did they come from? Well, it's not chronological, it's cyclical. It's, telling us a, it's showing us the exact same war from a different perspective. I keep saying this over and over again, but I'll remind you. Different camera angles show the same event from a different perspective. So today, I am commissioning, commissioning you to watch a football game. All right, some of you are going, praise God. <laughs> some of you are saying, I didn't need your commissioning. I was going to do that anyways. <laughs> But I am going to authorize you to watch a football game. And specifically watch at least until there is a play that is reviewed. Or watch an instant replay. And you'll see that same play from different angles. And you will see different things. It's the exact same play. There's no difference in the play. But one looks like the guy has the ball and he's inbound and another angle looks you see a different player and another player and you see different things and maybe it looks like he's out of bounds and if you look at the same play from different angles you get not a different view but you get a different perspective it doesn't change the play the play is the play you just see it from a different perspective and so we see this same war from John's just describing the same war from a different perspective And so the war that we see in chapter 20 is the war that happens in chapter 16 and is the war that happens in chapter 19. It's just seen from different angles. And this is the war that happens at the end of the millennium when Satan, this this long period of time until Christ comes again. And just before Christ comes again, a massive deception will go out into the world and people will be gathered together to come against the people of God. They will amass and then it will be over. And you'll see the war. The war is not much of a war. It doesn't make for a good movie. If you want a good movie, Revelation is probably not 
this, this war is not a good war movie. Um, I wanted to show a video, but it was so grainy and bad that I didn't. But there's a, two guys boxing, right, and the crowd's running. And there's one guy, and he's doing backflips and, you know, just showing off and doing backflips and somersaults and standing on his head and just taunting the guy, his opponent. And as he's doing one backflip with the opponent, just goes, boom, he's down. Oh, that's a lot like the war in Revelation. <laughs> Satan's all doing stuff and, you know, acting like he's something, you know, and Christ's like, boom, it's over. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> we should note that the imagery that John uses here is pulled right out of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38 and 39, um, because in chapter 38 and 39 of Ezekiel um, is a prophecy against a a country called Gog, G-O-G, and his prince, and the prince of Gog, who is Magog. And, um, and God uses that same, John is using the same imagery of, of that war, of that battle, to describe this battle. And so, here's what we see. Satan is unbound, and he does what he could not previously do, and that is a massive force to come against the people of God. I believe that's still future. You know I'm not a futurist, but I believe parts of the Bible, uh, parts of the book of Revelation are future. This is future. We are not there yet. But I believe that the deception is growing. I really do. I really, really... Things are changing. And Satan has a very specific target. And his target is the people of God. He has always had the people of God as his target. Do you remember way back in Genesis when we were studying Genesis? What was the verse that I never let you forget? Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. You guys can go back and listen to that. But from that very moment, the seed of the serpent, which is the seed, the offspring of the devil, come against the seed of the woman who is the offspring of the Messiah. And we saw the seed of the serpent in the battle between Cain and Abel. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. We saw that with the offspring of Seth. We saw it in Amalek, who came against the seed of the serpent, came against the seed of the woman, came against the people of God. We saw it in Herod. Remember when Herod tried to kill all the children? Who was he trying to kill? The seed of the woman, right? This is the angel battle that, that God talked about way back in Genesis. And here it is again. The seed of the serpent is coming against the seed of the woman, the church, the people of God. It's never changed. I was going to say it never will change. Oh, but it will. <laughs> and so Satan's target has always been the people of God. And so we see them he amasses this, this huge army like the sand of the sea. And, and they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints. That's great. That's Exodus imagery, by the way, because you recall that um, the people of God, remember when they came out of, the, out of Egypt and uh, they encamped where in the wilderness? But this was before they got to the promised land, right? I think John's using that. You and I are the camp of the saints. The church is the camp of the saints. We're in the wilderness. We are not in the land of promise yet. God has not brought us home. 
But just as he brought Israel into the land of promise, he will bring his people home. And while in the wilderness, this encampment is attacked. I want you to realize, folks, like never before, we need to realize that we are ambassadors and that we are just passing through. I know it seems kind of cliche to say we're just passing through, but we are just passing through. I know that we sit, get, we settle down roots here and we, we raise our families and, and our loved ones and we, we invest and we buy things and we do business and all of these things and that's fine. I just want you to keep all of that with an open hand because we are just passing through. Our inheritance is not here. Be diligent. Continue to work hard. Continue to to establish businesses. Continue to to strengthen your family. Continue to love your wife. Continue to love your husband. Continue to raise your kids in the fear and the admonition of the Lord God. And continue to do all those things. And realize that the way things really are is that we are ambassadors of another kingdom. And you have no idea when the king is going to come and say, okay, it's done. It's time to go home. And just as the wilderness was not the home for the Israelites, they were just passing through. So this world is not our home. But in the meantime, we are ambassadors. We represent another king and we are declared the glories and the beauty of the kingdom where we are. Why? Because we know this kingdom is going to fold up. But the kingdom that we're from is eternal. And we want people who are like, hey, you need to become citizens of this kingdom. The kingdom that I'm from, the kingdom that I've been adopted into, the kingdom that God has enabled me by His grace to become part of, not because I'm something. I know it's often said that, you know what, the, the, the Christian message is really one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I don't come to you in superiority saying that, you know, I got something. that I do have something you don't. But not because of any superiority or anything like that. It's just God had mercy on this beggar. And I'm saying, man, there's bread over here. You should come with me. And it's the bread of life. And you will never hunger and you will never thirst. And so I am pleading with you today as a beggar. Our problem today is we don't see ourselves as beggars. We see ourselves as satisfied. And so, the devil, Satan, unleashed, comes against the people of God. He comes against the church. And I want you to understand that the church is the people of God. Jew and Gentile. Read Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with 11, going through 310. Let's go all the way through 3. What did Christ do? He tore down the barrier wall so that there is no Jew and Gentile. Those distinctions aren't really an issue in God's church. Jesus is, He is the one. And He has torn down the barrier wall so that you and I, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, barbarian, male and female, are all attached to Jesus Christ. And if you have come to Christ by the faith of Abraham, you belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, I guarantee you this, Satan will seek to destroy the people of God. That's what he's wanted to do ever since the beginning. And he is hell-bent on it. 
He is focused like you can't believe. And the moment he has an ounce of freedom, that's what he's going to do. We should note that the destruction that comes upon those who gather, who are deceived by Satan to gather against the people of God, we should notice the swift destruction. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's it. It's over. That's what happens at the end of the millennium. Satan deceives the nations. It looks like you and I, the church, whether we're here or not, I don't know, but the church looks to be like it has no hope. Look at this huge army attacking. There is no chance in the world that a bunch of feeble believers can have any defense against such a massive army. And if it was just us on our own, we would surely be defeated. Fortunately, we serve the creator of the universe, the one who created the deceiver. And he just speaks a word and it's done. He spoke the world into existence and he can speak and it will be done. Fire, this is again imagery of Ezekiel. Um, You look here in in Ezekiel chapter uh, 38. Uh, Let me read 39.6 first. And 39.6. And I, this is again the, the battle that, that God, where God destroys this prince, called, this prince of a place called Gog. He says, And I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. Fire comes down, and Gog and Magog are consumed, and they will know that I am the Lord. Look at also what God says in chapter 38, verses, verse 22. He says, With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will rain upon him and on his troops and on the many people who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. And I will magnify myself. That's what happens at the end. The millennium comes to an end. Satan is unleashed. I don't know how long this... A massive takes place, maybe years, maybe decades, I don't know, but this massive takes place to come against the people of God seeking to snuff it out, and God rains down fire, and it is over. Oh wait, it's not quite over. Because Satan then is doomed. He is kind of ironic because his plot to, uh, to destroy the people of God actually results in his own destruction. And he is cast into the lake of the fire where the beast and the false prophet are. That is this counterfeit trinity along with the harlot. We've seen back in chapter 16 the harlot who represents an economic system that has lured men away, lured people away who have to sell their souls for the temporary pleasures of this passing world. That economic system is destroyed. She's represented by a harlot. The system that tempts us to say, you know what? It is better for me to gain the world and lose my soul. That's the harlot. She tempts us to say, I'd rather have the things of this earth than the things of God. She's destroyed. 
And so is this false trinity, the false prophet and the beast are also thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed. And now we see the devil thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see what's going on here? See, we're getting ready for a new heaven and a new earth. That's going to be our next few chapters. And in the new heaven and new earth where there is no crying, there is no death, there are no tears, there is no pain, there is only joy and and celebration in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ forever. And there is no room in that world for a harlot and a beast and a false prophet and a devil who deceives the nations. They must first be removed. And when they are removed, then God will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. And you and I will be part of that. Well, then we come to this very uh, imposing section dealing with this great white throne of judgment. How many of you heard of that before? The great white throne of judgment. Well, here it is. This is final judgment. This is it. It's the end for many. And in this we see God's majesty and authority because as God sets up his rule, by the way, this imagery is taken straight out of Daniel, that God is seated upon this throne which exemplifies his majesty, his authority. All of, there is this cosmic upheaval, earth and, and heavens and islands and everything flees away from God. Who can stand in the presence of God Almighty when he's about to judge? And we see books are open, and I want to focus, two books are open. The first book I'll call the Book of Deeds, the Book of Works. I'm not sure that these are literal books, like God needs to write everything down to remember things, but I think it is a reminder to us that God, nothing escapes the notice of God. Everything you have done, everything you have done, good or otherwise, God knows. God knows that time where you gave generously to a, to a charity or to a worthy cause, but you did it with a wicked motive. And everybody celebrated your generosity, and God knew that that was wicked. Because you did it for your own self-glorification. God also knows that time, those times when you did things exactly right in the world and your colleagues and your friends condemned you saying, you are guilty, guilty, guilty. How could you do such a thing? God knows. There is nothing that escapes his notice. And we see that symbolized in these books. And these are the books of deeds. I want you to understand we will all be judged by what we have done. And the great and the small stand before God. And you will be judged by what you've done. How are you going to do with that on that day? How are you going to do? Some people say, well, I'm pretty sure that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I'm pretty sure about that. I'm pretty sure I'm 51, 49. I'm, I'm right in there. I'm pretty good. Let me tell you what the Bible says. I don't know that we can be any more clear than what the Bible says. This is what Paul says. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. 
With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's Paul's assessment of mankind. Who has not violated one of God's commands? I mean, you and I, we might stand and say, well, here's a guy standing before a judge, and he says, but judge, look what I've done, man. I've I've helped rebuild my community and my neighborhood, and I've given to, um, uh, to, you know, a clinic, and I've helped heal people, and I've given to hospitals, and I've done all of these good things, and the judge says, yep, and you molested your children from the time they are infants until the time they left their house. Would you not say that that man is guilty? And needs to go away. I think we would all say, yeah, I don't care how many people you help. You did that. You need to be imprisoned. You violated. You are in violation of the most heinous thing you could ever do. You can't say, yeah, well, but I got 90% good stuff and only 10% bad. It doesn't work that way. There is none righteous, not even one. And who has not violated a command of God? Who has not violated the command of God? Who will be able to stand on that day when you are judged by your works? Good luck. Fortunately, there's another book. I'm glad there's another book. But it's a book of works also. It's the book of life. We see it also referred to as the Lamb's Book of Life, and make no mistake, it is a book of works. Only it's not your works, it's the works of Jesus Christ. And will you stand upon your own works, or will you stand upon the work of Jesus Christ? That's where you're going to stand. One of those books. It's not a record of our work. It is a record of the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the Lamb's book of life. And everybody whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life will be saved. I don't care how many entries you may have in the first book. First of all, I think that all of those entries will be eliminated, but... Even if you have a bajillion entries in the first book, because your name is in the second book. And that work covers everything that happened, covered every sin, every misdeed, every wrong motive. Jesus Christ the righteous. I said, who can stand before God Almighty? Who hasn't sinned? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ. And so anybody who is united with Christ is in the book and they will escape the wrath of God because of the deeds, the work of Jesus Christ. And then we see evil judged and we see sea, the sea, the death of Hades. Um, Again, probably figurative, just these are abodes of the dead. These are places of evil. The sea is a place of evil. Um, Death and Hades, these are used as places of, of the abode of the evil dead and they are all judged by Christ. These temporary abodes of the dead now give up their inhabitants for final and eternal consignment to the lake of fire. Those who 
reject the work of Christ, those who reject the gospel, will not be able to stand by their works and they will be forever condemned. And I do want to note that the eternal nature of this judgment, I know people, some people are really popular to say, well, we're just annihilated, we'll suffer for a period of time and then we'll just cease to exist. I really would like to believe that, but I can't because the Bible just doesn't say that. It is eternal. Uh, I was reading where... Two Puritan preachers in a conversation between two Puritan preachers. And the first one said to the second, said, So, brother, what did you preach on today? And he said, I preached on hell. And the first one said, Did you weep? We cannot be flippant about this text. We cannot be light about this text. We should weep. It should break us, it should cause us to mourn. Because it is a reality. And our friends and our neighbors will be subject to that reality. This is why the gospel needs to go out. This is why we do missions. This is why we evangelize. And it is a, it's called the second death. And it is forever and ever and ever. When I ask, do you fear the final judgment? You know I'm not a hellfire and brimstone guy, but we're in hellfire and brimstone passage. Do you fear the final judgment? Martin Luther was tormented by it. Tormented by the final judgment. This is what drew him to grace. I mean, he writhed in pain and agony, fearing the judgment of God. And he searched the scriptures, trying to find an out. And he found one. The just will live by faith. And it changed everything. It changed you and me. We are changed because he read, and the just will live by faith. Perhaps you mock the idea of final judgment. Ah, that's just some Christian silly thing you guys believe in. Fairies and pixie dust. I would admonish you not to mock the idea of such a serious thing, but that you consider it seriously. Are you concerned what will happen when you die? You should be. I think everybody is to some degree. That's one of those big questions. What happens when I die? Well, this is what happens when you die. There will come a time where you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and books will be opened. Book of Deeds, both of them, Book of Deeds. One your deeds and the other the deeds of Christ. And your name will be in one of them. And if you unite with Christ through repentance and faith, you will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life and you need not fear the first book. You see, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, has died in your place. Who can keep God's laws perfectly? I just read to you the assessment that Paul has of man. None is righteous. No, not even one. They've all gone astray. Every single one of them is corrupt, except Jesus Christ who fulfilled God's purposes and God's laws perfectly. He never once violated a command of God. And he died in your place. He bore God's wrath on the cross. All the wrath that is focused on the second death was poured out on Christ. And if you are united with Christ, you will never face the wrath of God. 
Because Jesus bore the wrath of God in your behalf. Jesus was condemned as a criminal. But God raised him on the third day. This tells us a number of different things. It tells us, number one, that while he raised Christ on the third day, see, death had no hold on Christ. It could not hold him because he had never sinned. And we are told that the wages of sin is death, but Jesus never sinned, so there was no wage to pay. It also is an affirmation that God accepted the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice is approved and it is acceptable and I receive it and it does what it's supposed to do. And what it's supposed to do is atone for our sins. Some people fear the judgment of God. Let me tell you, if you are a follower of Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, this is what I want to encourage you with. Jude chapter 24. I'm not chapter 24. Jude 24. One of the best verses in all of the Bible. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. On that day, before God Almighty, Jesus is able to make you stand in the presence of God with great joy. He will make you stand. I think I'll crumble. Jesus said, I'll make you stand. You will stand. You will stand blameless and with great joy. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. We read something very similar. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I'm going to conclude with this. Many people say that all religions are the same, that they're all leading to the exact same place and that they're all just different paths. Let me tell you something. Well, well, you know, I don't believe that. I will tell you this. There are only two religions in the world. There's not many. There's two. There's Christianity and there's everything else. And here are the distinctives of Christianity. Things that make the Christian faith distinct. And which is why it's not like every other religion. It's not. The thing that makes it distinct is that the Christian faith believes that Jesus is God. That Jesus is divine. And the reason we believe that Jesus is divine, of course, is the scripture. The scriptures tell us clearly that Jesus is divine. That is, we don't believe that he is a, a demigod or a, a, a lesser God, that he is divine, but somehow lesser in essence than the Father. We do not believe that he is a created being. Every other religion will have some sort of created being whether giving birth as a spirit child in some other heavenly realm, or whether he was the first exalted creation by God the Father, that he is always something else. There was a time when Jesus was not, and the Christian faith believes that Jesus is of one essence with the Father. That he is God. This is important. You need to understand why this is important. It is important because only God can save you. A demigod or a created being or an exalted spirit child or anything else cannot save you. A good man cannot save you. A great man cannot save you. Only God can save you. That's it. Jesus has to be God. 
But Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us, and he became a man and he walked amongst us. And this is important, because while only God can save us, only man owes the debt. Do you see the beauty of the Christian religion? Only God can save us, but man owes the debt. And so God puts on flesh and dwells among us and fulfills the plan and purposes and the commandments of God perfectly so that as God, he can pay the debt and as, man, as a man, the, the right party is paying it back. So we believe that Jesus is God. Here's the other distinctive in the Christian religion. First one, Jesus is divine. And the second is that salvation is by grace and by grace alone. You are not saved by your deeds. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot work your way for, to heaven. You cannot somehow be good enough. All of a sudden, fallen short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God, of Christ, is eternal life. It is by grace that you have been saved. And grace is just that. It's an undeserved gift. That's it. It's a gift. We have such a hard time accepting that God would give us a gift like that. Let me earn it. Let me do something. And God says, how, would you, how can you do that? How can you say, God, let me pay you for a big thing? I'm going to give you a gift for your birthday. And you say, let me pay you for it. No. It's a gift. And God has given us the greatest gift, his son, Jesus Christ. And for us to say, well, thanks, but I think I'll try it on my own. Well, you can try it on your own. So we believe in two distinctives. Jesus is divine, and you're saved by by the work of Christ alone. And every person here will be judged by your works. You will all be judged by your works. I will be judged by my works. And you can be judged by your own works, or you can be judged by the work of Christ. That's where John puts us. So will you stand before God based on your own merit or will you stand before God on the merits of Jesus Christ? That's, that's where John has placed us. And so, at the end of the millennium, Satan will come out and deceive the nations. And they will come against the church and it will be over and God will judge the deceiver and we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and should be judged by works. The work, of God, the work of your own hand or the work of Christ. So I think I would be remiss 